Welcome to Real Leaders Radio, bringing you the story behind the story of the most innovative, authentic leaders we know. And now, here's your host, Sue Heilbronner. Hey, everybody. This is Sue Heilbronner, and thanks for joining us again at Real Leaders Radio. We're happy to have you. We're uh, coming to you from Merge Lane, the accelerator focused on companies with at least one female in leadership. And today, we have a real, real treat. We're joined by John Katzman, who whom I've known for, I don't know, a very, very long time. He founded Princeton Review, was CEO for many years at Princeton Review, also a founder of a company that's now called 2U and plenty of companies before that and in between those major things. He's currently serving as founder and CEO of the Noodle Companies, and I'm sure he'll talk to you more about those. John, thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you for having me. So, John, the way we start this is we love to just get from the entrepreneur or the leader uh, just kind of a three- to five-minute life story. So just kind of give us a sense of where you came from and where you are. Okay. I uh, graduated college, and in college I was just doing some tutoring, just pay the bills, and thought it'd be fun to start a test prep company in New York, maybe run it for three to five years and uh, used the proceeds to start a software company. And I loved it. And, and Princeton Review took off, and it, it turned out to be a three- to five-year kind of rolling exit, which took 20 years to execute. Took it public, hated being public, and decided to leave and create a new company called 2U. Ran that one for four years, and actually we raised about $100 million in VC for that. Things were going well. The board decided to take it public, and I thought that was a good path to exit. So this is my third time around. The Noodle Companies is a studio, and I'm creating three separate operating companies with three management teams, all of which is about trying to make the marketplace of education more coherent. And, you know, we can speak a little bit more to that, but to connect learners and educators and students more effectively. What did you hate about being public? Oh, it blows. Um, you know, if, if you are really interested in creating products, in creating something good and working with customers and building a team. If you love startups, then being public is the opposite of that. It is spending your day talking to investors and bankers and accountants, none of whom cares at all about product or about the quality of what you're doing. And so you're you're further and further away from your company. You're further and further away from everything that's fun, either your team or your product or your customers. John, what makes you such a diehard entrepreneur? Where did that come from in your life? You know, my my grandfather invented the electric vaporizer and ran a small company. He was an immigrant. Had a stroke. My dad took over the company. And I kind of hang and watch him. And, and he was always pretty good on this. He didn't give me a ton of great advice. But, but one of the things he said all the time is that it's just so much more fun to work for yourself and build something. Uh, and he was right. I feel like you are a guy who naturally creates kind of the brush fire that turns into a giant fire of fame around you. And I don't know you that well, but my sense of you is that you just detest the concept of being famous. You know, it's not that I like or don't like being known. It's that there are a couple things that are totally distracting to running something well. One of them is is spending a lot of time thinking about getting rich and doing this because you're going to have a huge exit. That exit is an awfully long time away. And and so it gets really discouraging. People who come in who are an entrepreneur for the money, I think, have a tough tough time. 
And the second is, is getting your ego all into it. That, you know, to the degree that every time something good happens, you can talk about this guy and what a great job he did. You're making that guy really happy. You're building a spirit for your team. And there's plenty of reflected glory uh, to be had. You know, at 2U, our policy was if there was press about us, and this is when I was running it and my successor it took a different tack, um, <laughs> that it was a disaster, that, that what I wanted to see is press around USC, reinforcing how great that program was, making the faculty feel good, making the administrators feel good. And if in paragraph three, it said that this is a result of a partnership with 2U, and I had something I could bring to other universities, which was just fine. Like I was building SEO and building brand for the university and for my program there, and at the same time giving myself a selling document. But even if it didn't mention me, if my website says I'm the guy who built that program, and I can still use that press and, and talk about how great the programs are. I, I think the notion of wanting a personal brand is, is narrow. John, I heard stories about you that I don't know if they're true, and I've never asked you directly about them. Like... I have heard a story that in the early days of the Internet that you bought up a whole bunch of domains of, like, other companies that you were way ahead on this. And so you bought brands like Kaplan, Direct Competitors. Is that true? It's half true. Um, I was the first cyber squatter, but I wasn't going willy-nilly and just gobbling up domains. I specifically for Kaplan and a bunch of domains around that. This was really early, and there was no law on this. And so my thought was, we're going to take those domains. It was like, it was like building a, a store on Kaplan Street, that there was nothing particularly protectable about that, and just set up a site about just how terrible they were and uh, give people a chance to air their grievances and that they would be stuck with that site forever. And then it turned out that actually there's trademark laws that did apply to the Internet, and, <laughs> and we discovered them, and, uh, and we ended up having to give it back. Uh, there's a joke that you offer, uh, at least part of the story I heard, is that you offered to give it back to them in exchange for a six-pack. Is that is that true? No, it's not. I offered it for a case of beer, <laughs> and they refused because they thought that they were going to get a huge award from the uh, court. Oh. And uh, and when they won the case, the judge didn't award them anything, and so we were able to do a press release that, that we were disappointed, but all it proved is that Kaplan had no vision, no sense of humor, and no beer. <laughs> <laughs> so my instinct about you is that you are like a lifetime agitator. And if I'm right about that, uh, I'd love to hear how that has served you at different points in your entrepreneurial life. And if I'm wrong about that, what are you instead of an agitator, and how has that served you? I'm, I'd like to think of myself as the guy who noticed that the emperor is naked. Like, he wasn't trying to agitate. He was just being the truth. There's, for instance, the truth that, that standardized tests have been tremendously destructive in education uh, and measure very little in general. Uh, narrow curriculum, you know, and do a lot of damage. And the fact that we were a test prep company meant, yeah, we benefited from those tests, but it also meant we knew them better than anybody else. And similarly, you know, you look right now at for-profits in education as a group, and overall, the track record's terrible. You know, the for-profit industry has been a net negative. Nonprofit charter schools outperform district schools, but for-profit charter schools underperform district schools and nonprofit. For-profit universities have been, as a group, 
terrible and are responsible for major runoffs in bad bets. An interesting article just came out from Corinthian and how they were targeting homeless uh, guys with no intention of getting them an actual degree. And that kind of stuff doesn't make you wildly popular in the testing world and doesn't make you wildly popular in the for-profit world, but it is what it is. You could have done anything, right? You probably could have been, I don't know if you would have been elected president, but you probably would have had a shot at it. You do already do a ton of charitable giving and a lot of purpose work uh, and have for a long, long time. Why did you pick business as the place where you wanted to put most of your attention, maybe alongside your family versus some of these other avenues of change? First of all, a for-profit is not so different from a non-profit. If you're doing a good job and you're bringing 20 points to the bottom line, the products you do, the services you do could have been 20% cheaper. However, your ability to bring in great employees who are more likely to do a great job and who are motivated by equity, your ability to access the capital market, the lack of constraints on you as a for-profit versus as the additional set of regs on a non-profit. I think it's no contest. I think you can do more good, especially within education, but I think in a lot of places you can do more good as, as a for-profit. John, a lot of these guys are going into a stage where uh, some of them already have been raising money and some of them are going into the next step of doing that while also – you know, most of these companies are realizing their first revenue over the last year, some over the last six weeks. What have you learned about fundraising and how to drive success, especially if you think back before you were you? So when it was like raw materials, John Katzman, not reputation, John Katzman. I mean, a few things. The first one is build something that's really good. You know, if you, if you think about the role of startups, especially in the service industry. Being the low-cost provider is a very hard road because an existing player can just blow your doors up, can just choose to lose a couple bucks for a couple years until you're dead. On the other hand, being a high-service provider, building something that's great and serving a niche but serving it much better than the existing players is very tough for them to compete with. It's very tough for them to give a level of service and quality in a way that you can uh, with your service. And then, you know, once you have a rabid core, you can grow it from there. So one thing that was in my mind from the beginning is we're going to build something that's really, really good, really accountable. We're going to measure from day one, and we're going to report publicly on, on how we were doing. Number two is there weren't a lot of the financing options available to me that, that in my first company that there were in my second. So you learn to think in a pretty scrappy way about using your cash. Looking for partnerships, looking for larger companies that I could help in some way, you know, I realized we have these great techniques. We know what we're doing around the SAT better than anybody. Eventually, even Kaplan was going to figure out those techniques, roll them out nationally. And by the time we got to Chicago, there would be somebody with all of our ideas, but with somebody else's name, and that would be a problem. So we did two things. One is we franchised so that we could open in as many places as possible, as quickly as possible. And two is we came out with a book with Random House called Cracking the SAP. We gave away all of our secrets. And the book took the bestseller list. And, it, you know, it made some money. But what it really did is it branded those techniques as ours. It branded the notion of, of beating the test as ours. So even if Kaplan was going to figure it out, and maybe even if that gave them a little bit of a head start, it was too late for them to brand it as theirs. So the notion of like working with a random house, the notion of working with franchisees in my case, but looking for strategic relationships that can that can expand you that much quicker, I think it's important. 
give us a couple things that just looking back, I mean, whether it was intentionally brilliant or whether it just ended up that way, I'd love to hear candidly from you a couple of strokes of genius. That that one is a great, that's a great one. I don't know about genius, but, but there's some moves that have been better than others. Like when I think about PR, think about real press-worthy stuff. Like how often do you do something that really deserves to be on the front page of the Times? Right? They pretty much got to kill somebody. How often is your business going to be front page worthy, especially as a startup? So that is great when you get it, but don't expect that you're going to get it very often. Level two is faux press. What can you do to get a bunch of press where you really didn't actually cure cancer or do anything like that? Um, so my favorite example was uh, Gore v. Bush, the first debate. We know that those two guys are going to debate. We know that Bush comes across as an idiot. And so it was kind of pre-internet or early internet, so you didn't really have, like, real-time transcripts of the debate. So we hired two stenographers, and they're sitting there on keyboards, and as the debate is going on, they're typing in everything that, that their guy is saying. And at the end, seconds after the debate ended, we took each one. It was in Microsoft Word. If you do a grammar check, it gives you a flesh Kincaid grade level for what you just typed. <laughs> and we had the press release ready to go. We were faxing. We were emailing. We were calling. We got out within seconds of the end of the debate to every reporter. Here is the grade level that Bush was speaking at. Here's the grade level that Gore was speaking at. And they all went with it. And we got millions and millions of dollars of press for 50 bucks, you know, and, and, we, and we had a great time. That's full press. And it's better than real press because you can do it any time if you're if clever. And then the, the highest order where it really gets good is recurring full press. So you really want something that you don't have to be clever, that you, that you had a good idea once and then you can do it forever. So Barbara Corcoran, a friend of mine who was, I guess, on uh, Shark Tank now, she had some tiny little real estate shop in New York. And she started publishing just for friends a newsletter and she put a name on it, the corporate report, here's what's going on in Manhattan real estate. And she sends it out every month for a couple of months. And all of a sudden, the Times calls her, and they're doing some story. And the guy says, you know, can I quote this? And she says, sure. And so it was quoted as the corporate report. And all of a sudden, she starts getting more and more press pickup of the corporate report. And people start thinking of the corporate report as a big deal. And over the years, it was what drove her entire brand and company. Wow. And... It was just a, a tight newsletter. And in the same way, uh, at Princeton Review, when we did a, uh, a guidebook for colleges, and we surveyed 200,000 kids a year and asked them, you know, tell me about life on campus, tell me what you like, don't like, and so forth. And we had the idea, you know, we crunched all the numbers, we normed it all so that we could see what were the outlying schools on any one question. And we realized not only could we do a good write-up of Duke, you know, or of any school based on that data, but we now could create lists. Here are the schools that smoke the most pot or that drink the most or that study the least or, you know, whatever the list was. You know, uh, you're really into the college radio station. The food is really good or bad. And each one of them, we thought, well, which press outlets would pick this up? So High Times would pick up the stuff on pot and Gourmet might pick up an article on which campuses had the best food. And we started sending them out and we got an incredible pickup on a lot of them, but we got really the most pickup on the party school. And all of a sudden, every year, we can reliably count on 10 million unique visitors the week that the party school list comes out. And we don't have to do anything at this point. It's just forever. For one week, we'll have 10 million visitors if we, if we are competent. So that, 
that's recurring to press. And I, I would argue that in the day and age of SEO and SEM, everybody's thinking about just clicks, and thinking about branding and thinking about how you use the press and how you use recurring faux press is, is probably my, my best trick. It seems to me that you've had kind of a crew of people that have followed you through a lot of stages in your business career. Is that, is that perception right? And you've had kind of a central group and long-term kind of friends and rabbis around you, or have, has that switched over time to different people that are of service at different times in your career? It's like the Grateful Dead. And there are a couple of people who stick around and then random other people come in and out. I'd like to think uh, that I have a pretty good eye for people who are talented and, and that I work hard to give them the space that they, that they want to be in. Uh, but yeah, we, we, over the years, you collect a pretty good Rolodex. What's something people would be surprised to know about you? I'm not wearing any pants. <laughs> um, I think people think I'm much smarter than I am. And despite what seems to be a mountain of evidence and the notion of first caring a lot about what people think and second, uh, letting it drive behavior. I'm, I'm reasonably good at, at staying clear of. So I, I actually say that about myself a lot. Probably this isn't true for you, but people do to think that I'm smarter than I am. And my reason, I, I think that I'm able to fake people out because I'm faster than I am smart. What do you think is your compensatory measure over raw intellect that makes people think you're smarter than you are? Boy, another good question. Um, I think guys in general are more confident than women and more willing to, to just put it out there. Guys generally have egos that are a mile wide and an inch deep. Women a lot of times have egos that are way too small. They're very deep. They, it's very tough to shake them of, of their confidence, but their confidence in very little. So it, it could be that, that just my confidence in my, in my being right <laughs> makes people think that there's some reason I'm confident. Yeah. I get that. <laughs> that makes sense. So, John, we've got a bunch of female entrepreneurs in this program. And I think I love what you said. I actually think that, that that really resonates with me about sort of narrower confidence, but a greater depth, ultimately, of self-center, self, you know, centeredness, groundedness in women. But at this particular stage, for a lot of these women leaders, when they have to go out and, you know, generally ask a bunch of dudes uh, for investment uh, or even partnerships, right? One of the jobs that I have is sort of sorting out how to resolve that confidence issue. And I hate to generalize about this and I hate to assign issues that aren't really there and create them by talking about them. So I always worry about that. When, when you've seen issues like that with women that have been leaders around you, what have you seen be successful? How have you helped nurture women leaders around you? Um, you know, everybody has a go-to management style, and I try to push the women in my companies to make decisions sooner. I mean, you've heard it. It's trite at this point. People say that if you have under 40% of the information you need to make a decision, then you're making it too soon, and if you have over 70%, then you're making it too late. But making them guess making people feel comfortable, working on a well-informed hunch, and making them feel it's okay. A surprising number of women in my company, so they, when, they, when you ask them something, when you ask them to do something, and the answer should be, no, I can't do that. Even when they're willing to say no, they feel bad about it. 
and I coach them to try to feel good about saying no, that, that there's, it, it should feel awesome. Think Bartleby, right? Just, I'd rather not. <laughs> That's a bad idea, and we're not going to do that, or I'm not going to hit that deadline. You know, I have a CTO who used to say uh, that 10 pounds of sausage in a five-pound bag, like, not going to happen. I'm not signing on to it. But he always said it with a big smile, like, uh, didn't feel bad, just, yeah, no. <laughs> John, what's the hardest conversation you've ever had? Other than this one? <laughs> uh, I think firing people sucks. And the only thing worse than that is not kind of owning up to it and sitting someone down and being honest. And the lawyers always tell you, like, the less you say, the better. But the feeling, if someone is a good person and a bad fit, they should hear it. And you might know some place that is a good fit. And at this point, I have enough contacts that I try very hard to to help someone find something better. And if they're doing a bad job, they should know. Like, what bummed me out? Like, where where did we go wrong? People remember being fired an awfully long time. And you owe it to them to make it as honest and friendly as, as you can. But it's never good. Frankly, yeah. even performance reviews in general are, are bad, even when they're really positive. I think, I think those are hard, and I try to have somebody else do them. <laughs> so, all right, this is my last question. So I have this story that we all have had a piece of feedback that we have received for our entire life. Like, we were two years old, we got a form of this feedback, we're 50-plus years old, we're still getting this feedback, we work on this thing our entire lives, it's our life's work to figure this thing out, and no matter how, what we do, no matter how much we grow and evolve and make progress, we still get some version of this feedback. I've got one, and I wonder if you have one. Well, have you told these guys yours? So mine is, uh, it's not about what you're saying, it's about how you say it. How about you? Mine is that I, I spend money badly, that uh, I'm good at the revenue side of a business, I'm not good at the cost side, and there were precedents of that just as bad about, about blowing through whatever, whatever money I made. Uh, or whatever money I was given. And that's still pretty true. Like, I, I need I need in my company to have somebody who is a hawk on the expense side, because I'm not that. John Kassman from the Noodle Companies and many, many previous game-changing educational companies, thanks so much for joining us today and uh, sharing some real thoughts with us and the folks here at Merge Lane. Thanks so much from Real Leaders Radio. For those of you who are listening to the podcast, we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us at Real Leaders Radio. To hear other episodes of this podcast or learn more about Sue Heilbronner, visit us at realleadersradio.com.